From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And this jam-packed week included a guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd and Earth Day 2021, as climate experts say we have less than seven years to stave off the worst impacts of climate catastrophe. Climate justice and environmental justice, all of it is centered on racial justice. And in our monthly extended segment on culture and media, Truth, Lies, and Videotape, how one 17-year-old stepped forward in history, the latest in fake UN reporting on Syria, and then first they came for your vote, now they're coming for your protest sign. What public policy reasons did you have for passing legislation that would provide drivers with immunity for striking protests? There's no public policy rationale for that. All that and much more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, all in one week, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges in last year's murder of George Floyd. Hundreds attended the funeral for Dante Wright, shot dead by police just miles from where Chauvin's trial took place. While at the same time, there were eruptions of protest after new cases of police fatally shooting black people across the country. Sean Blackman, organizer with the Stop Police Terror Project, was among those who gathered spontaneously at Black Lives Matter Plaza near the White House after Tuesday's verdict. He spoke to the crowd about what the verdict means to him. We call this a people's victory for two reasons. Number one, because the people knew Derek Chauvin was guilty the moment we saw that video. Ain't that right? And number two, we call it a people's victory because the only reason why Derek Chauvin was charged is because of the rebellion against racism that raged in the streets of D.C. and across the United States all last summer and up until this very day. The guilty verdict in this high-profile case, Watch the World Over, gave new energy to Washington lawmakers working to pass police reform legislation named in George Floyd's honor. While supporters of the measure say that it will create uniformity in policing standards, activists say that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act does not go far enough to address underlying systemic problems in policing, which they say is not designed to protect and serve the poor, people of color, or other marginalized groups. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was ridiculed for a bizarre speech about Floyd, quote-unquote, sacrificing his life for justice. Meanwhile, Representative Cori Bush, with roots in the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson, Missouri, held a press conference Thursday on Capitol Hill to end the filibuster so that legislation for police reform, voting rights, and increased minimum wage and other priorities cannot be scuttled by a united Republican opposition. There is this old, outdated, racist rule called the filibuster that has been used to deny our basic human rights and to 
especially to people who look like me. And Senate Republicans, more concerned with obstruction and with taking back control for, let's be real, a Trump agenda, than they are about saving lives. They are continuing in their tradition of weaponizing the filibuster to deny people in America everything that we love. Meanwhile, right-wing radio is still fuming over the fact that Representative Maxine Waters of California rallied with protesters in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, and told reporters that if police continue to kill with impunity, that, quote, we got to stay on the street and we got to get more active. We got to get more confrontational. We got to make sure that they know we mean business, end quote. But unlike the right-wing mob that rioted at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, protesters were not moved to riot after that. 82-year-old lawmaker spoke on April 17th and an attempt by Chauvin's defense lawyer to use Waters' right to free speech to ask for a mistrial was denied by the judge. Though the judge did say oddly that Waters' comments to reporters could be the basis for an appeal. But infringing on First Amendment rights seems to be the new tactic of the right after attacking voting rights. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday signed into law a bill that civil rights groups warn is designed to crack down on peaceful demonstrations by redefining them as riots. An obvious reaction against racial justice protests that followed the police killing of George Floyd last May, one outrageous portion of the law grants civil legal immunity to people who drive vehicles through protesters blocking a road. During the past year of social justice protests, Participants have been killed and seriously injured by drivers intentionally crashing their vehicles into people. Observers say that these types of laws would have actually exonerated a white supremacist who drove his car through the crowd in Charlottesville in 2017, killing Heather Heyer and injuring many more. As President Biden hosted global leaders at his virtual climate summit and announced a new goal of cutting in half U.S. greenhouse gas emissions from 2005 levels by the end of the decade, the Climate Justice Alliance collective of 70 organizations said that Biden's proposals passed the burden of emissions reductions to the global south and called the ideas cruel, disingenuous, and doomed to fail. The alliance called on the United States to immediately stop all new fossil fuel projects and stop extracting from Mother Earth, pay reparations to the Global South through investments including renewable energy and sustainable mitigation measures and infrastructure, among others, and address environmental racism by ending support for false solutions that harm marginalized communities and the Global South and that only continue the practice of using black, brown, indigenous, and low-income communities as sacrifice zones. And finally, in culture and media, the importance of the mid-Atlantic region to African-American history is being given special international recognition. Chantel James has more. Fort Monroe in Virginia, the site where the first Africans were brought to English-speaking North America in 1619, is a newly named site of memory with the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization Slavery Project. In recognition of UNESCO's designation of the site, three and a half hours south of D.C., 
the Hampton History Museum organized a virtual information session this month to engage African-American descendants and unearth collective memory in the historic Hampton Roads community. Not only is Fort Monroe significant in the history of the Atlantic slave trade, it also served as a place of refuge during the Civil War for those escaping enslavement. These escaping men, women, and children were termed contraband or seized property by the Union Army. Eola Lewis Dance, acting superintendent for the Fort Monroe National Monument, discussed historical events that have shaped African-American genealogy. She talked about the significance of the 1861 contraband decision. This particular history begins with the arrival of Baker, Townsend, and Mallory, three freedom seekers forced into servitude in Virginia at Sewell's Point by the Confederacy during the American Civil War. As these freedom seekers arrived at Fort Monroe, they were granted audience with General Benjamin Butler. General Butler, being an attorney, rationalized keeping these men as contraband of war. This is where a very challenging topic or challenging word becomes connected to the history of freedom seekers. Baker, Townsend, and Mallory were then followed by tens of thousands of African Americans, not only here in Hampton Roads, but throughout the country, wherever they could find refuge behind Union lines. When we think about Fort Monroe, there's the grand contraband camp that was established here. Once all of the needs were realized for contraband for freedom seekers who arrived at that time, that included education, food, clothing, medical attention. All of these things were the reality for freedom seekers who arrived in Hampton Roads. There was also a legal reality around contraband decision. In and of itself, it wasn't binding. But the first and second confiscation acts allowed General Butler to continue to allow refuge as well as the War Department to continue to allow refuge to freedom seekers. Additionally, it allowed for the establishment of the United States Colored Troops. Once the United States Colored Troops entered into service during the Civil War, it increased the need for hospitals. I have here a photograph of Harriet Tubman, who we understand to have been recruited to serve the contraband hospital here at Fort Monroe. Tubman, being literate in different ways than we oftentimes think about, was actually a very accomplished nurse. And so her skills were of great use here in the area. However, her limited literacy may be a reason why she was not allowed to become the head matron of the contraband hospital. And so she only stayed for a short while before returning to Auburn, New York to assist her family and then later heading to South Carolina to lead the first woman-led raid, armed raid, on the Combahee River where she assisted over 700 people to freedom. Lewis spoke on her efforts to work with African Americans today to create multidimensional visions of how communities have moved forward through the centuries. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James.
In This Week in History, April 17, 1961, a U.S.-backed attempt to overthrow Premier Fidel Castro of Cuba failed disastrously in what became known as the Bay of Pigs fiasco. About 1,400 anti-Castro exiles invaded the island's southern coast along the Bay of Pigs, but were overrun by 20,000 Cuban soldiers and jailed. Trained and guided by the U.S., the exiles had expected support from U.S. military aircraft and help from anti-Castro insurgents on the island. Instead, due to a series of mishaps, they fended for themselves with no support. The failed invasion heightened Cold War tensions between Cuba's political ally, Soviet Russia, and the fledgling administration of President John F. Kennedy. April 20, 1914, miners in Ludlow, Colorado, at a coal mine owned by the Rockefeller family, were attacked by National Guardsmen paid for by the company. The miners were seeking recognition of their United Mine Workers Union. Five men and a boy were killed by machine gun fire, while 11 children and two women burned to death as the miners' tent colony was destroyed. And finally, there are several events and actions in the D.C. area on April 24th. Some are in person and some are online and you can join virtually. The Washington Interfaith Network leaders will gather on Zoom and in person to demand affordable housing opportunities at Reservation 13, the site of the former D.C. General Family Shelter. The network is pressing for developers to commit to 3,000 residences at the site with two-thirds of the units at, at below market rates. That's Saturday, April 24th from 10 to 11 Eastern Time on Zoom and in person at St. Coletta School, 1901 Independence Avenue in Southeast D.C. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Harris from Newport News. She has watched generations around her be poisoned by the plants in Newport and has started fighting back. And uh, when we started looking at the environment, we were able to see that this plant right here is uh, releasing toiling into the air. This impact, this is why we have having strokes, this is why we have psoriasis, this is why we have having heart problems, asthma, you know, babies having strokes now. You got the coal yard over here. You got the Michael plant, you got the Chase Bag Company, and you have the shipyard. 
the ones that live over here in those projects over there, the parents worked the shipyard. Right. So they had a triple whammy. They had the coal dust, they had the sand blasting and stuff from the shipyard, and they had the Chase Bag Company. All our elders that lived in these apartments behind, and we'll go around and show you the apartments. All these people were being um, basically killed and didn't even know. The children of those parents that I grew up with, a lot of them contracted asthma, asbestosis. And most of their parents died from that. The husbands and the wives. I had three uncles that worked the shipyard that were diagnosed with asbestosis. Cancer Alley, Stroke Alley, a food desert, and it's the most of. So they basically left us here to die. Running in the midnight. Run until we get tired, run until the end, away. The desperation in Angela's voice is so real. Can you imagine knowing that you are breathing poisonous air every day? Get tired, run until the end, away. This is the coal yard. You see the whole operation. You see there is no glass ceiling. So everything that's being right. done is just going straight into the straight air. Up. Those sprinkler systems um, is what they put up there, and those sprinklers are supposed to contain the uh, the coal dust and all that type of stuff. That little sprinkler system right there. Are you serious? Yes. These cars that you see right here, they go over to the coal thing over here. They shut the coal down in this thing, and then this railroad actually goes all the way through the community. Because he's on the phone, I know he called the police. And we're coming in peace, so we're just going to leave him here. When Katrina hit New Orleans, 1,833 people lost their lives. Now, if you can go to a place that if they were hit by a category one storm, it would have more disastrous effects. I said, well, where is that place? I'll be there. They said that Hampton Roads, Norfolk area. A rock from space slammed into what is now Virginia, and besides really ruining the days of a couple of dinosaurs, it also left an intense crater, which made the water around what is now Norfolk deep. There's probably not another locality that's facing uh, the challenges and the threats around water. I'm not trying to see my area on the news talking about body counts and we can't find this person, we can't find these people. The naval base in Norfolk equates for the largest percentage of any industry. There's also the Langley Air Force Base, NASA. But all this military infrastructure is going underwater. The government must be working on fixing this show, right? No, 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 my friends. The flood wall stops where the public housing area begins. St. Paul's, like many public housing communities around the country, is more prone to climate flooding than the rest of the city, further complicating the question of what to do about public housing and families who need housing support. So you're looking at multiple billions of dollars to try to build a living with water situation. Gotta rebuild it back in a way that lives with the water. So they offer Section 8 vouchers and things like that to get people to move other places. People are running out of places to go. Hold up. How are we the ones being hurt the worst by a climate crisis that we contribute to the least? We used to mainly smell car fumes, and we didn't smell them anymore because we were growing things. You spend your life in trying to transform it so that privileged people can then just push you right out? My God. It's a long process. 
It's like you say, it takes a whole village. We understand that this is an issue that affects us more than everybody else. Climate justice and environmental justice, all of it is centered on racial justice. We don't have any other choice but to figure this out for our future. You just heard African-American residents of the Hampton Roads and Newport News communities in Virginia speaking in a video included in the We Shall Breathe National Earth Day special produced by the Hip Hop Caucus. The Hampton area includes Fort Monroe, the site where the first Africans were brought to English-speaking North America in 1619. The fort is a newly named site of memory with the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization's Slave Root Project. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. and for this month's extended segment on culture and media i'm joined again by our media critic john jeter former foreign bureau chief for the washington post two tom pillitzer prize finalist and author of flat broke in the free market how globalization fleeced working people he joins us from limon costa rica welcome back to the show john thank you for having me esther well, you know, there are actually a number of like freedom of expression issues that I just want to mention real quickly. There are all these crazy bills passed in Florida and I think also maybe in Oklahoma or proposed in Oklahoma that will actually criminalize protests. You know, it's they're obviously targeted at Black Lives Matter protesters. The law in Florida will basically give uh, impunity to these people who drive their SUVs through crowds of protesters, you know, killing and maiming people. Julian Assange is still in prison. Mumia Abu-Jamal has undergone heart surgery, and apparently that's turned out okay, even though he only had to undergo this type of treatment because of medical neglect in prison. So some of the stories that we've talked about in relationship to freedom of speech and freedom of the press are still out there. But I want to offer my theme for this month, which is truth, lies, and videotape. So let's recap. If it were not for the video taken by a 17-year-old Darnella Frazier of Derek Chauvin kneeling, and not just kneeling on George Floyd's neck, but at times grinding his knee 
into Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. And if it were not for the protests, national, even global protests against racism in response to this public lynching, Derek Chauvin would not have even been arrested and then would not have faced the charge of second degree murder that he was just convicted of this week. So this is a people's victory for George Floyd's family and friends. And for all the people who marched, there were even martyrs and people injured by fascist vigilantes during the last year, just because they were standing up for justice. But obviously it's not a victory that says now with this bad apple tossed out that all is well with policing. So that would be one lie, right? But John, I want to draw your attention to the lie told by the Minneapolis Police Department the day George Floyd was murdered. I sent you the statement released by the Minneapolis Police Department with the headline in big letters, man dies after medical incident during police interaction. And this statement by the Minneapolis Police Department that was released last May after the May 25th death of George Floyd went viral this week. The statement goes on to describe what we would later learn was a gruesome murder. But the statement says this, quote, he was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later, end quote. So, John, copies of this report, like I said, went viral Tuesday, the day Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges. Now, a long time ago, at some point, both you and I covered police, right? We were on the police beat at some point in our in our careers. Right. Okay. that's correct. And so I just want to make it plain to the listeners that this is the type of misinformation that police routinely release and that an important outcome of the Chauvin case is the increased scrutiny of police brutality, but also scrutiny about the lies that police tell and the lies that they're used to getting away with. And so this is what the official story would have been if a 17 year old had not stood and documented a murder, you know, with her cell phone. You know, with with her, her nine-year-old cousin in her care standing next to her wearing a, a sweatshirt that said love. What are your thoughts on that, John? Let me start with this. I mean, you know this, Esther, but your audience wouldn't. I started my career as a journalist in Minneapolis working for the newspaper there, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. I covered cops and then I covered city council. And where that Derek Chauvin trial occurred, I would walk through that every day during when I was at work. And um, when I was there in uh, late 1980s and the early 1990s was when the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis and St. Paul, was beginning to change. Stick with me here. I have a point that's relevant. Up until I think it's 
recently as 1970, the Twin Cities was 93% white, right? It's an overwhelmingly white state and white city. When I was there in the late 80s, it was starting to change. We were starting to see an influx of blacks from places like Gary, Indiana, and Chicago, and places like that. And also a huge influx of Somalians and Ethiopians, I believe, Eritreans even, I think. But anyway, Africans were coming. And so now I believe the numbers are something like, and Hmong, they have a lot, a big Hmong population, or Laotians, people from Vietnam. And so now I believe Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, is just 63% white, right? So I say all that to say this, that the failure of not just the media, but our legal system is grounded in racial storytelling, right? What the Minneapolis police issued, their statement about George Floyd's death, it was a lie, certainly. We know that, right? And as Zora Neale Hurston said, whenever you catch someone lying, they're afraid of something. Well, what were they afraid of? What they're afraid of, right, generally speaking, we're not talking about all white people. All white people aren't bad, and white people aren't inherently bad. But this is a failure of culture. This is a culture that identifies white people as separate from the whole, that encourages white people to think of themselves as a thing apart, right? That's a certain hysteria. Right? That's not based on anything in science or sociology. right? And so this racial storytelling is really at the root of our problem. Remember, the Panthers would always say, if you're going to address a problem, you have to be able to describe it, first of all. Well, we can't describe our, our problem because we are too engaged in this culture of pretend, which is racial storytelling. And that is our main thing. So like you, you mentioned this when you first started. You talked about... I think people should be hopeful until we draw the last breath. I'm hopeful, even though I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful, right? I hope things will change. I hope that uh, George Floyd's murder will begin to signal a real significant change in how people of color are policed in this country. But the facts on the ground say suggest very strongly that this was the exception that proves the rule, that the conviction of Derek Chauvin was the exception that proves the rule. And like you said, according to the New York Times, Republican legislators in Oklahoma and Iowa have passed bills granting immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters in public streets. So if we if we say, if we acknowledge that the protests after George Floyd's killing are what probably sparked a different result, then you have to acknowledge this hysterical response. Think about that. What public policy reason could you have for passing legislation that would provide Drivers with immunity for striking protest. There's no public policy rationale for that. So this should be the lead story throughout the media, I think, right? This this hysteria, which has gripped, I'm not going to say all white people, obviously that's not true, but a critical mass of white people, enough where we see this washing over the country and really crippling our democracy and our ability to come up with the answers to our most pressing problems. So those are my initial thoughts about what's happened in Minneapolis in the last few days. When you were talking about these cars being allowed to like basically mow down protesters, there's a like an image of that, like of kind of like a T-shirt and that these right wing groups have like like put that almost as a symbol. And it's similar to how they also have on their shirts like the helicopter and like Pinochet's like henchmen 
fascists throwing socialists and throwing people out of the helicopters during that uh, reign of terror. Oh, wow, yeah. Right. yeah. Right. So yeah. it's the same, it's the same type of energy of really basically these fascist groups in the United States that, that we have now. And with the passage of these types of bills, it's really just an endorsement of these fascist groups. So I realized, you know, I watching American Insurrection, which is another documentary we talked about last week, basically someone trying to help us figure out in our minds, you know, what, what is the proud boys, right? Because, you know, you have Enrique Tario, a person of color who is obviously not white, but he's a leader of the proud boys. And so what this researchers is saying to the, the reporter AC Thompson is that this, that, that it's not really about so much about white supremacy, but they are fascists. And so they are, they are using these, uh, these symbols of, of leftists being thrown out of helicopters by Pinochet and having t-shirts that say Pinochet did nothing wrong. So that's, that's who we're dealing with here. Right, right, right. And, and, and it's all, it's, but, but you know, it, it, the fascism is rooted in this white nationalism. Well, in connection to what you're saying about storytelling, the prosecutor made a mighty effort to say that this case of Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd was not about all police, that the Minneapolis police were not on trial, that policing was not on trial. And we know, and most of us know that it was very much on trial, right? And it remains on trial with Dante Wright, you know, being shot to death, you know, just 10 miles away from where the trial was happening. And I think the New York Times said that more than 60 people have been shot and killed by the police during the trial around the country. And video is key in all of these cases. And often the cases that don't receive national attention, like, for example, murders of two men right here in the DMV, James Johnson and Dominique Williams shot in Tacoma Park, Maryland, by an off-duty Pentagon police officer. Right. Right. There is no video that I know of depicting what happened to those two men to go viral for people to see and recognize it as another lynching. Right. So to give an example, let's look at the case of Army medic Karan Nazario in Virginia, though. Okay, pepper sprayed, assaulted and threatened with execution by a cop who has since been fired. And there was video. There was video that was released of this incident because the Nazario who has sued these police officers, his attorney insisted that this video be released. And also Nazario took his own video from his phone sitting up on his dash. Right. And so Nazario's attorney, Jonathan Arthur, he described in an interview with CNN, you know, how this already very violent and abusive incident could have easily ended in another murder by the police. Easily. So let's hear what he had to say. And this is just something else about about how video is playing such a role these days. Once again, you're facing Joe Gutierrez already having threatened to kill you. I think he 
displayed admirable calm. It's what I would require and expect from United States Army officer to be able to remain that calm, knowing that one wrong move and you're going to die. And it, it was made worse by the fact that we had one officer telling him to keep his hands out of the window while the other officer telling him that, uh, you know, he, he needed to open the door and get out. My client had to figure out which one of those inconsistent commands to, you know, comply with. And, you know, he picked the one to keep his hands out of the air, which is good because, you know, he was terrified that if he was going to move his hands below where Officer Gutierrez could have seen him to undo that seatbelt, they'd have murdered him. And if they'd have murdered him, then what would have happened is the investigation would have revealed that he had a completely legal pistol in that vehicle, and then that's all we would have heard, was that the police got a man with a pistol, not what actually occurred. So I thought that that was such a remarkable statement by Nazario's attorney, and I hadn't really heard that, because he's right, that if they had killed him, they would just say, oh, he reached for a gun, (laughs) or he had a gun in the car, and that's all... That's all we would have heard. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have heard anything, but there was this video and we were able to see what happened. And I think that's important. Again, back to this idea of racial storytelling. Why do we have racial storytelling? Because racial storytelling pathologizes the oppressed, not the oppressor. The black guy had a pistol. We had to shoot him. This this 13-year-old girl and uh, I can't remember how she was, she was a teenager. In Ohio, and I don't know the full story. When I look at that video, I can't completely tell what's going on. But here's what we all know, right? But but no one will say whether she had a knife or not, whether she was actually about to hurt someone. If that had been a white girl, this would be this would have ended very differently. Now everybody knows that, but because of racial storytelling, no one says it out loud. It's almost acceptable. Well, she's a black girl with a knife, about to hurt somebody. Well, you know, yeah, go ahead, shoot her. It's just something that we almost intuit. Not all of us, but most of us now, because we've got this, we live in this culture where racial storytelling has almost subverted reality for us. And so, you know, now we've got this technology, these phones, which is the counter to that, right? Because like you say, if we don't have the videotape, I mean, Rodney King, they had the videotape. And they, the jury still acquitted those officers. So, I mean... This is a, an extraordinary moment where we're sort of we're sort of confronted with this culture which has distracted us from what's really at the source of our malaise. It's a very narrow lens through which we see the world because we have told these racialized narratives for so long that it results in this myopia. We see our Sales and the world through this very this very narrow lens, and we can't quite figure out what's right, what's wrong, and what might actually help us advance as a community. You know, it's very it's really interesting. You you uh, talked about the narrow lens because when I first heard about Makia Bryant and they described her situation, I said, "Well, why was she in foster care?" You know, what was her life like? What was her mother's life like that she was even in that situation? You know, and there are all these new cases. There's a case down in Elizabeth, North Carolina, where a man was driving away and he was shot at. So people are remembering Walter Scott. They remember how Walter Scott was shot in the back 
And then Michael Slager tried to toy with the scene to make it look like Walter Scott right. had grabbed its taser or whatever. Right. The young teenage boy and uh, Latino boy in Chicago who the police killed said he had a gun. It was clear from that grainy video that he didn't have a gun. Um, he may have had a gun um, at some point running, but it was dropped, you know, and he turned yeah. and had his hands up. That's what that's well, what my yeah, well, understanding I'll, I'll, is. I'll say with, with my bad vision. Uh, you know, a <laughs> deteriorating vision. Uh, I could see, at least I thought I could see with his hands up that he didn't have, he wasn't holding a gun. No, he was not holding a gun yeah. when he turned and he had his hands up. And there's just so much to say about that case. But let's just take a brief break. I want to come back and talk about our last story about truth, lies, and videotape. This is On the Ground. We'll be right back. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show.org thank you This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum in conversation with our media critic, John Jeter, for this month's Culture and Media segment. I think you call the segment On Media, John. So I, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting to say the right name of it. But, oh, um, <laughs> but what I want to wind up with uh, today is another case of lies, truth and lies. So we've been keeping up with the excellent reporting by Aaron Maté on his podcast, Pushback, on this very serious uh, scandal involving the manipulation by the U.S. of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And the report they put out about the alleged chemical attack in Syria. So to refresh our memory, uh, in April 2018, Syria was accused of making a chemical weapons attack on the city of Douma. And after that, without UN Security Council approval, the US, Britain, and France bombed Syria. And then the OPCW, this Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, eventually put out a report pretty much in line with the claims of the US. But it was later revealed through leaks that the actual inspectors who were on the ground in Douma found no evidence of a chemical weapons attack and that their own findings, their own reports were censored and that the report that was released was really a fake report. And these whistleblowers, these actual inspectors, you know, they've had to really just come out as whistleblowers about this whole situation. Well, anyway, on April 16th, Hans von Sponek, he's a former UN assistant secretary general 
And also Lawrence Wilkerson, who we know as the former chief of staff to former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, testified before the U.N. Security Council about the scandal. There's been a letter signed by several people, uh, including uh, Tulsi Gabbard, Oliver Stone, the filmmaker, basically telling the U.N. they really need to get to the bottom of the scandal and not have an organization like that used by these imperialist countries, basically, to cover their attempts at regime change in Syria. So I have a um, piece of audio from Aaron's podcast, Pushback, with Lawrence Wilkerson testifying. In 2003, Lawrence Wilkerson helped prepare Powell's infamous speech to the UN, making the phony case for invading Iraq. Colonel Wilkerson has since renounced those Iraq war fabrications. And here he is now returning many years later to the UN Security Council to address another pro-war deception, the OPCW's Syria cover-up scandal. This time, of course, he's speaking against it. I've not been on the ground in Duma, but I've seen just hordes of photographs about the situation in Syria and about alleged chemical weapons use. And frankly, as a military professional, on each occasion, I was appalled. I was appalled at the media and the way they reported it. I was appalled at the sensation created around it and so forth. I knew that the United States Army, my army, had spent time in the Mediterranean destroying, I think it was 600 metric tons of chemical weapons from Syria. Uh, did Bashar al-Assad put some aside? Possibly. But I know from my own authorities that uh, they thought that was, a, in conjunction with the Russians, that that was a, a pretty thorough cleansing of chemical weapons in Syria. So my, my antenna were up up acutely right away when someone claims that there was chemical weapons use in Syria and that it was the government of Syria that did it. And then when I saw the photographs and other things, I know a little bit about VX and sarin and chlorine and so forth. I, I saw that some of the claims were preposterous. They were preposterous, simply preposterous. When you see a man standing beside a crater, for example, um, and alleged VX or sarin was used, you know it's preposterous. The man would be dead. I know how effective these kinds of chemical weapons are. And I happen to know also what kinds of weapons Syria had in its stockpile. We had a dossier on that for a long, long time during the Cold War. So count me very skeptical on even any use of chemical weapons of consequence by the Syrian government in Syria. That's the start point. And then this occasion in April just seems to me to be a reflection of that plus an attempt to uh, subvert uh, an otherwise pretty sound organization, the OPCW. Uh, I know how we tried to influence the IAEA with regard to Iraq and other countries. I know how, as I said before, we tried to undermine the ICC, we being Washington. So I'm here as a, an impartial observer, if you will, but my real interest is in, as I think most of your interest is probably in, is keeping this international organization sound. One incident of undermining the OPCW or the IAEA or any other international organization's professionalism and conduct of its mission is bad. 
uh, and should be looked at and should be investigated and the appropriate people should be reprimanded, uh, held to accountability or whatever. I know that's not something we do in the international community very often. If we did, my president, George W. Bush, would be up on war crimes, torture, clearly, a war crime. Maybe even the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was a war crime. Certainly, Kofi Annan made statements that it was. Uh, so, But I'm looking at the Duma incident, and I'm looking at the particulars of that incident, and I'm looking at what looks to me like a very convoluted process that produced a good report and then produced a report that was more politically influenced than it was uh, a report on the facts. So, yes, that's Lawrence Wilkerson speaking before the U.N. Security Council. So I want to keep raising up that story, because when you talk about storytelling, what I'm struck by in terms of trying to watch the media is how this story is one of the stories not being told. Right. And there's real serious issues around the Biden administration's ratcheting up uh, a new Cold War, not only with Russia, but with China and stories like this about, you know, an obvious attempt by the U.S. and its allies to uh, to enact regime change in Syria. The fact that they weren't weren't successful, you know, the fact that they are still in Syria illegally stealing Syria's oil, their grain, you know, we're occupying Syria illegally. These stories aren't talked about, you know, people want to talk about Matt Gates and whether he slept with a 17 year old. I mean, there, there's all these kinds of stories in cable on cable news now. And just very often the heart of stories, you know, like the, the protest bill, like, you know, they talk about the protest bill, they talk about voter suppression, but they don't talk, you know, for example, about Julian Assange. They don't talk about how in their voting bill they have uh, being considered uh, S1, H1. They have a poison pill to make it harder for third parties to form, you know, that ma- to make it, you know, virtually impossible for people to break the duopoly of the two corporate parties. So this is just a story, uh, an, an unrep- underreported story. Well, and it's one, it's one of so many. And, and again, you know, we get back to this idea of racial storytelling. When you catch someone lying, they're scared of something. Well, what, what our political class is afraid of is that their time is up and they don't even have any counter argument anymore. So the, the, the answer is just not to report on these things. Syria is a perfect example. The, uh, the Russians poured into Syria. They came to Syria's aid. For one reason, really, and one reason only, right? And that's because they understand, because they understand what happened to Libya, right? Libya, which posed no threat to the United States or any other country, right? Uh, which had Muammar Gaddafi, who was probably the leading African nationalist, uh, uh, pan-Africanist alive at the time of his death, uh, who was trying to unite all of Africa under a single uh, monetary currency, which would have been a game changer and the United States which was suffering through the 2008 recession the worst recession the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression uh, looking to steal money basically Libya had oil and gold they went in and they took it and so it's this idea of pathologizing everyone but us Muammar Gaddafi was this and that he was an eccentric he was a dictator he was you know maybe so but that's for Libya to 
to deal with him. You want to help Libyans deal with him and get rid of Muammar Gaddafi, then you build up civil society. You don't go in and destroy everything. But see, this is the result of racial storytelling. We don't have the tools, the critical faculties to address our discontent. In the 60s, when we had a more full-throated conversation, not perfect, but a full-throated conversation with the black radical movement at the center of it, there was an internationalist perspective. We could account for these things. We could explain these things in the context of our own suffering. We can't do that anymore. We don't have the faculties to do that. We don't have the language to do that anymore. So the United States is in very real trouble. And and really, you know, I, I know I'm a one-trick pony these days, but I, I just don't know of anything that's more pressing. The, the root of our discontent is this racial storytelling, which uh, alienates us from each other and the truth. Yeah, and yeah, we we have to to end it. But related to Syria, I'm, I'm and listening to Wilkerson, and I, I appreciated his testimony. But where is the acknowledgement of the U.S. use of chemical weapons? You know, how do they get to define? You know, the I discussed with Gerald Horn last week the new documentary uh, "Exterminate All the Brutes." And one of the things that Raul Peck says is that it depends on who gets to name, who gets to name it, right? Who, who gets to name the crime, you know, or, or that it's not a crime, right? So he says, you know, why was Hiroshima and Nagasaki not called a war crime, right? And so... Uh, why wasn't Agent Orange a, uh, a chemical weapon? Why wasn't depleted uranium in Iraq a chemical weapon? You know why? 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 Why can't Iran have nuclear weapons? Our, uh, uh, Israel has them. Why right. can't Iran have nuclear weapons? So not that they're actually building nuclear weapons, but we don't. We just don't talk about these things. Yeah, just the idea of who who gets to name what a chemical weapon is, right? Anyway, we're gonna have to leave it there. I've been speaking with our media critic. John Jeter, he is the former foreign bureau chief for the Washington Post. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of two books, actually. And one of them is Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Thank you for joining me again, John. Always a pleasure, Esther. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we play this hour included Steel Pulse, Wild Goose Chase, Anthony B. Police, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>